Welcome to the Living Godcast. Our prayer is that this message speaks to you, impacts you, and inspires you. Please enjoy today's message, and we invite you to contact us if you need prayer, appreciate this word, or would like more information on Church of the Living God. Be blessed today. All right. We'll, uh, we'll swap out when we get a chance, all right? Everybody cool? Everybody good? What a good day. What a good day. Amen. Thank, thankful to the Lord for those who have been saved today. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's better. All right. If you've got your Bibles today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. There we go. I've set my timer for 30 minutes. I will endeavor to abide by that as best I can. Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're going to read through verse 6, and then we'll give you the title and we'll pray, okay? You ready for the word? Awesome, awesome. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to Jesus after they came from Jerusalem and saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed. Verses 3 and 4 are parenthetical. They're to give us the background of what was just said in the first two verses. For the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. Now that seems a little bit random in the narrative of the story, but it's going to make sense here in a minute, okay? Verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands? Now they're not just unwashed hands, they're unholy hands, right? Verse 6, but Jesus said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. I realize it's a little heavy uh, ending point there. It'll get better, I promise, okay? Uh, I want to talk to you this morning about a heart that honors. A heart that honors, okay? Let's pray. Bow your heads, please. Father, we thank you for all that you've done in this place. Lord, we thank you that as we lifted up the name of Jesus, that you drew people unto yourself. God, we're grateful. Continue to save. Continue to restore. Lord, we ask you right now to give us hearing ears to give us hearts of flesh, that our hearts may be good ground for the good seed of the word. Lord, produce in us fruit that remains, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Mark chapter 7. This passage is uh, mirrored in Matthew chapter 15. Those are the two places that this is told in the Gospels. And it's a story of uh, Jesus as he's ministering in Galilee, the religious people in Jerusalem have dispatched a crew of uh, Pharisees and scribes. These are the, the religious elite, the zealots, the guys who know the law better than you or I do. And uh, in Matthew 15 and in Mark 7, they arrive and they begin to uh, observe some things and converse with Jesus, and Jesus capitalizes upon the opportunity. So that's what I want us to, to focus on today is what Jesus says and then what the Lord leads to happen. 
At this point, Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's walked on the water. He's given his great dissertation in John 6 about being the bread of life sent down from heaven. And so now he has sat down to eat some bread with his disciples. The Pharisees and the scribes arrive, and they observe that the disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed. In Matthew 15, it talks about them eating without washed hands. Now, what's the focus of that? What's the purpose? To give you some background here, the, uh, the washing of hands in this culture, in particular, as it says in verses 3 and 4, even down to pots and pans, has become very significant for them. If we go back to the Old Testament, back to the Exodus, remember the story of the Exodus? Moses came and said, let my people go, and God freed the people from Egypt. When the people came out of Egypt, they did not know the Lord. They didn't know how to worship Him. They didn't know what He expected of them. So over the course of years, God reveals Himself to His people, Israel. And in the process of that, God gives them some commandments. He gives them some rules to live by. Now, if you interpret the, the, the rules that God gives, 613 of those rules. If you interpret those as a list of do's and don'ts, as things that God says, if you do this, then bad things or good things will happen. If you don't do this, bad things will happen. If you only see it that way, you're going to miss the point of why God gives rules. Parents, why do you give rules to your kids? To keep them safe? Why else do you give rules? What's that? To guide them, Yeah. Do you give rules to your kids because you hate them? Do you give rules to your kids because you want to dominate them? No. We give rules to our children because we love them. And in fact, we want to love them all the time. Because sometimes when they break rules, it challenges that, doesn't it? Depending on what they do. (laughs) How many of you were rule breakers as well when you were young? Absolutely. It, It happens sometimes, doesn't it? That's how we learn sometimes. God gave rules to his people not because he wanted them to live in a certain kind of way, but because if they lived that way, he could be with them, and they could be with him. God wanted his people, all of them, not just Moses or Joshua. He wanted all of his people to have access to his glory, access to his power and his voice. He wanted for when the cloud came down over the tabernacle, not for people to shiver and shake in their tent in fear, but he wanted them to want to run to be with him in the tabernacle. The rules that God gave, the standards that he gave were there so that the people could be so clean that even in their sinful state, they could stand in the glory of Almighty God. When you think about it like that, it makes it a little more beautiful, doesn't it? It makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Now, what happened is there were events throughout the life or or the story of the Old Testament that took place, one in particular, uh, where the the Ark of the Covenant was being transported to Israel on a cart, and it got jostled on the cart, and it was going to fall, and somebody reached out to touch it, and they died. And so from this came this, this mindset toward ritual purity and cleanliness, okay? Everybody with me so far? I'm giving you a history lesson, I'm sorry, but I feel like i got to set this up right for you. Because otherwise, if we just jump into a story about a bunch of guys fussing about not having washed hands, it seems a little petty, doesn't it? All right, it's not petty to them. It's not petty to them. They have seen throughout their history what happens when people approach the Lord unclean, when they're dirty, when they're filthy, when there's stuff on them that ought not be there, and they go before the presence of a holy God, they don't survive it. Okay? 
So in response, what has happened, fear has come upon the the Israelite people. Fear has come. And the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they've developed this tradition that has come out of all of this fear and all these experiences. And now they've, they've evolved this to a point where they have to wash cups and pitchers and pots a certain way. Where now when they go to the market, when they come back home, they have to do this ritualistic. Notice it says that they carefully washed themselves, right? In verse 3, I believe it is. They carefully washed. I read one commentary that kind of talked about it, and it talked about how that they would initially start with their hands upright at an angle so that the water would come down and wash the tops of their hands in a certain way so that the water would take the dirt that had made them unclean and it would wash it away. But if that water that was carrying that dirt dripped down their arm, like happens sometimes, doesn't it? Then now their whole arm would become unclean. And they'd have to wash their arm in a certain way. And then after they did that, they would turn their hands the other way and pour water the other way so that it would get the inside so that every, every possible crevice of their hand would be washed and touched and purified, air quotes, purified. They did all of this because they were afraid of what would happen if they didn't. They developed a, a, a fear and a theory. They developed a, a, a practice that was actually not ordained by God. If you were to look for, for footnotes in, in Mark chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, and if you were to go to Matthew 15, 2, and try to find a cross-reference point where in the Old Testament it said to do this, you won't find one. God never told them to do that. Isn't that interesting? God never told them to be particular about how they wash their hands. He never said, tilt your hands up, tilt them down. If your arm gets dirty, you got to start over. He never said all of that. That was people interpreting God through circumstance, which is what you and I do. And I believe that's why God gave me this word today. It's for me as much as it is for you. That we must guard our hearts. That we don't insulate ourselves in a way that actually inadvertently puts us farther from God. Let me give you a silly example, okay? I am, I am very allergic to cats. Very, when I was little, I was in the hospital because of cats. So if you have a cat, I'm not coming to your house. I don't care how short-haired it is. I don't care if it stays in one room. I'm not coming. I mean no disrespect, but I don't need another hospital bill, okay? And I'd like to live till tomorrow. So I have, over the years, insulated my life in a way where I am not around cats at all. My wife loves to make fun of me because if there's a little bitty kitten, I'm like this, getting away from it. I I believe they're precious. I believe they're cute. All of that. But you can have it. I want to live. Okay? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Silly example? Now, let's translate that over to what we just talked about. You can insulate your life in a way, I don't go anywhere where there's cats. I don't, I'm not close to people who have cats. Okay? Once a year, I might stop at Pastor Mike's house. Do you still have the cat, Pastor Mike? No? All right, I can go to Pastor Mike's house. Cool. I've learned to insulate myself in a way. The, the Pharisees, the scribes, the people of Israel, they did the same thing. There was a bad experience. There was circumstance that came, and they began to insulate themselves from what God was originally intending and saying, and they added to. And you can tell me all day long that your pet is hypoallergenic. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. 
Perfect example, Pastor Mike, they have their dog, Tucker. He's hypoallergenic, right? Every time I'm around that dog, I'm a mess the day after. A mess. Running everything. It's horrible, right? It might all be in my head. That might be the most hypoallergenic dog that has ever lived. It might, okay, see? So it's all right here. It's all right here. But it's affecting the way I live my life. It affects my relationships. It affects where I go. You with me? If I insulate myself in a way because of circumstance or my interpretation of circumstance, even when it's the Lord, I can find myself living a lifestyle in a position or a place that God never told me to live. God never told me to live that way. I don't have to live that way. There might be an allergy shot now that I could take every week and it would just completely make me immune to to allergies to animals. And my kids would love that. But it's not happening. It's not happening. I don't trust it. I don't believe it. Because my circumstances taught me certain things about them and about me. And there's an incompatibility there. And so the Pharisees, when they see the disciples, and I love this picture, the disciples eating bread with the bread of life. Jesus, the bread of life that has come down from heaven, that if any man will eat his flesh and drink his blood, then he will never die. They're sitting with the bread of life, and yet these men observe it and they say, you guys are blasphemous and unholy. You didn't wash your hands the right way. Therefore, God doesn't bless your food. God doesn't bless your bread. How absurd to think that if I don't pray or wash a certain way, that God can't bless what I'm doing. But we do that all the time. We say that all the time. People begin to do things that make a decision that we don't agree with, and we're like, God's not going to bless that. Who told you what God's going to bless? When do we get to sit in God's seat and dictate the blessing and dole out the blessing? I don't want that responsibility, do you? We shouldn't. However, I'm getting sidetracked. So they observe. They say that that there's a connection between washing and holiness, unwashing and unholiness. And they formed this opinion because of bad experience. And I feel like the Lord is, is pushing on me, and therefore by proxy maybe on some of you, to allow him to break down some of that insulation so that our heart, not out of malintent, not out of a, a meanness or maliciousness, our heart may come back where it needs to be. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Okay, I want to show you some, some other things here. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands? He says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Side note about hypocrites and hypocrisy. People think that the church is full of hypocrites. Um, It ought to be. Where else can the hypocrite go to find the truth? The church ought to be full of hypocrites. Secondarily, as apostles always said, God forbid we not spend 90 minutes with hypocrites a week, but then go to hell with them for eternity. Amen? That's his line, not mine. But it's good. Hypocrisy should not be the obstacle that keeps you from the Lord. Okay? 
If that's the case, we're, we're all doomed, aren't we? All right, side note. Isaiah did prophesy in Isaiah 29, 13 about this very thing. He said, then the Lord said, because this people approaches me with their words and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me and their reverence for me consists of the commandment of men that is taught. Then he brings judgment. So there, something happened in the process and in, in the journey of the lives of these people where over time their, their commitment, their heart got so far away that they began to prioritize the wrong things. Have you ever done that? Have you ever prioritized the wrong thing in your marriage? If they have, elbow them right now. All right, throw an elbow. All right. With your kids, you ever prioritize the wrong thing? With your job, have you ever prioritized the wrong thing? It's possible. It's part of human experience. And yet, they began to, because of that experience, their heart got far and their reverence for me instead became based on people. Not on me and what I said, says the Lord. Isn't that interesting? And again, if you think about it from a religious pious standpoint, we're like, oh, those Pharisees, they're awful, they're terrible. But if you think about it circumstantially, it makes a little bit of sense, right? What happens when you ask the Lord and 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 he doesn't answer? What do you do? You stop asking the Lord, okay? What do I do? I stop asking the Lord. I've prayed, I've supplicated, I've begged, I've claimed, I've named, and yet the Lord is not doing it. So my tendency is to say, okay, Lord, Let's just not talk about that. Let's just not go there anymore. Am I the only one? Have I ever been there? And this is what they've done. Instead of endeavoring to understand God and His standards and why He wants them clean and to what degree He wants them clean so they can be with Him, instead they just said, oh, I'm not clean enough, I'll never be clean enough, so therefore I'm going to put all these steps into place and it's the only way that I can know that He's not going to kill me. And we do the same thing, just not exactly in those terms. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Everybody good? All right, cool. Verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. This is what Jesus said. Verse 9. He was also saying to them, he gives them, he goes through a specific scenario, that they're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep their tradition. And he goes through something they were doing in his day where they were literally taking things that could be used to take care of their elders and giving them to the temple so that the temple could amass wealth. Okay, so not only is Jesus good enough to clarify some things, but he also calls them on their stuff. That's cool. That's really good, okay? Now, bypass that. Verse 12. Um, Let's see. No, verse 14. Afterward, he calls the crowd to himself again, and he begins saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him. That's controversial. That's not just controversial 2,000 years ago. That's controversial now. He says there's nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him. Defile means to uh, devote to anything but God. To, to the non-sacred, to the secular, okay? So nothing outside of a person can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which come out of the person are that which defile the person. Why is this controversial now? Because we are very quick to say, don't drink that, don't smoke that, don't eat that, don't do that. 
Instead of, why do you want to drink that? Why do you want to smoke that? Why do you want to do that? Do you see the difference? Jesus says, by washing, you're putting the Band-Aid on it. The problem is not that your hands are dirty. The problem is that your heart is. The problem is not that you want to drink something you shouldn't drink. The problem is, is that in here, you think you need to. It's not that you want to smoke something or be with someone out on the outward just for gratification. It's that inside you have to have that. Your desire has taken over. Do you see the difference? We can sit back and we can band-aid and we can say, but God, if I don't do this, then this won't happen. And there may be a degree of success with that. Or we let Jesus do what Jesus came to do. And that is to get into the heart of the matter, into the mess of it all, to get into me and say, I know why you don't want to ask anymore. But keep asking. And I've got to face that. Amen? We have to face why we want what we want. Why that drink calls our name. Why that person calls our name. We have to, we have to address that. But we don't have to address it alone. We have Jesus who wants to be the king of our heart. And he wants to take our heart and he wants to fix our deepest issue. And he wants to turn it into a heart that brings honor to him. You with me so far? Okay. So the problem is not the pornography, friend. The problem is why you need it. The problem is not the illicit affair. The problem is why you need them. The problem is not your anger. It's what made you angry. And Jesus wants to get past all the fluff and the stuff and the outside, the whitewashing that you do. Jesus later calls these guys whitewashed graves. You're pretty on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Brother and sister, not a one of us is called to live that existence. Not one of us is meant to live a life where we are dying inside but polished up for Sunday morning on the outside. Not one of us. But if we think that we can do it on our own without Jesus, we're doomed and we're lost. If we think that we can have a heart fix without coming to the one who made it, then we're going to miss out on what he has for us. Verse 20. Jesus was saying, that which comes out of the person is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the heart of people, come evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. What makes you sick before God is not the dirt on your skin. It's the issue in your heart. But notice that he's not afraid of the issues of the heart. He never says, but because it comes out of you, I can't handle it. He never says that. He never says that because it's been in you your whole life and it's been passed to you from mom and grandma that I, I can't do anything about that, sorry. He never, ever says that. He never says that. Verse 24. Now Jesus got up and went out from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it, but he could not escape notice. Verse 25. But after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. 
It's by no mistake that this language is used in this story. In two Gospels, the same story follows these, these, this exchange with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees who are so focused on being clean, being clean, they're so focused on being clean on the outside that their inside doesn't even register on God's radar anymore. And then Jesus goes to a place, after exposing all that, he goes to a place and a woman comes and falls at his feet because her little daughter has something unclean in her. Oh, man, I didn't even catch that the first time around. Wow. Her little daughter has something unclean in her. And the one who knows how to clean anything, the one who can make anyone clean and pure, is standing there encountering this woman. It says in Matthew 15, verse 22, that she was a Canaanite woman. She's not even one of his people. She's from the coast. She's from that area, Tyre and Sidon. She's from the coast. She's Syrophoenician. She was Canaanite. She came out and began crying out to him, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. A demon has taken hold of her little girl. Something unclean has gotten within her. We don't know how. We don't know why, but we know it's there. And it's vexing her. In the King James, it says that she is grievously vexed by a demon. This spirit is there. Verse 27 in Mark chapter 7. No, I'm sorry, verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile of Cyrenetian uh, descent. She repeatedly asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now we always interpret that this this is kind of a racial slur, a slam against this woman. She's a dog compared to the, the children of Israel. To some measure. But the word for dog here actually means puppy. It actually means a puppy. So he's not talking about you're astray, you're worthless, you have no home, you have no purpose. He's not saying that at all. He's talking about a family pet. You with me? And if you go back to Matthew 15, same word is used. It's a puppy. He's talking about a family pet. So he says, let the children be satisfied first. What good parent would take the children for the kids and give it to the dog instead? But the dog is still in the house. The dog's still in the house. He's not saying that there's not anything for her. He's saying, I've got to give to the kids first, and then I'll take care of you. Okay? Everybody with me? All right. It's quiet. That's why I keep asking. Make sure I'm not losing you. But look at what comes out of her mouth when she engages with Jesus. She doesn't come at him accusatively. She doesn't get offended by his statement. She repeatedly calls him Lord. In Matthew 15, 24, he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, but she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, in the, in the Greek, is the, the Greek word kurios, which means supreme. Lord, help me. The Pharisees, they never called him Lord. They never once addressed him with respect. And here's this woman with a deep need, and she's actually experiencing a little bit of delay and rejection. Oh, man, we know how that feels, don't we? 
To experience the delay of the Lord. It's not that the Lord is saying that He'll never take care of it, but He's saying, hey, not right now. Something else comes first. And unfortunately for us, that's His call. It's not ours. But the Lord has bread enough that even His crumbs will satisfy her need. And she knows it. She knows it. And that's what she hangs on to. And she says, Lord... Lord, she throws herself down at his feet and she doesn't stop asking him. And he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but please help for even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Apostle said it for years, but she made him her Lord and her master. She says, I might be a dog, but I'm a dog under your table. I'm a dog in your house. I might be second to the children, but I'm at least in the door. And she calls out. And Jesus says in verse 28, Oh woman, your faith is great. Your faith is great. Why? Because there was something in her heart that was not in theirs. It wasn't in the others. Their lips honored him, but their hearts were far away. And yet here is a woman who comes to him out of the coast, not obligated, he's not obligated to do anything for her. And she comes, and her heart is so close to him that he cannot ignore her. Her lips do honor him, but so does her heart. Her heart honors him. And when he hears it and he sees it, he says, what faith, what faith. I don't know where her faith came from. I don't know what it was seated in. I don't know what experience she had that led her to this moment of great faith. But whatever it was, God had been working on it a long time. And when the time was right, when the fullness of time had come, and Jesus was down the way. He sent her running. And that demon, that unclean spirit, that unclean thing that was in her little girl did not stand a chance because her heart was close. She didn't know the word. She didn't know the ritual. She didn't have a right. But she was able to snatch out of the hands of heaven the very answer that she needed. Because her heart was in a place that other people were not. So I think that's what the Lord's trying to tell us today. I think he's, he's challenging me. He challenges me a lot. I don't know how you guys are. Maybe you're really good at this. But when things are hard, I clam up. Anybody else? I shut down. Things get hard. I'm like, I got too many things going on. I'm going to go home and sit on the couch. Can't do it. And that's dumb. And I got to work on it. I'm working on it. Uh, you know, and you get thresholds. You get levels. You know what I'm saying? What's a lot for you might not be a lot for me or vice versa. So a little bit of grace, please. But the fact remains, I believe God wants to draw our hearts again to him. I believe he wants us not to discount what he's already done that he wants us to push through 
and trust that whatever's happening, it's because he wants to be with us. And he wants us to be with him. And that may be elementary to you. That may be, you're like, yeah, God's been telling me that for years. I'm good. That's fine. But I think it's for somebody today, not just me. Stand with me if you would, please. Done. A heart that honors. A heart that honors. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Where's it at? Is it close? Or have you built up some layers? You built up some insulation. I can't be the only one. Where's our heart at? Or have we become like the Pharisees? where we rely on our service, our service to, to reflect our devotion instead of our heart, instead of the way we talk to him or the frequency with which we talk to him. You guys understand what I'm saying? All right. Where's our heart? Maybe you've been saved for just a little while and you're still figuring this whole thing out. God bless you. Keep on. Don't stop. But there's going to be moments where circumstances tell you one thing. And the Word of God tells you something else. And you're going to have to choose which one to believe. You have to choose to believe these. Or these. Over what the book says. I'm just telling you, it's coming. I don't mean to be a downer. I'm not trying to be a downer. But I love that man's version of cleanliness didn't measure up but I also love that the devil's version didn't measure up that no matter how unclean that spirit was it it couldn't do anything when Jesus spoke the word oh woman great is your faith great is your faith it says in Mark 7 29 he said because of this answer go the demon has gone out of your daughter And after going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Oh, man. Now, let's be honest. It might not turn out like that in the timeline for us. Exactly. But it definitely won't if my heart is far from it. Right? It definitely won't if my heart is far. If my lips show him honor, but my heart's over here. Instead, this is our opportunity to come to the Lord with our hearts. And I know it's 1247. Let's be honest, we're getting used to it though, right? Cool. But there are people in this place today who need to come to the Lord with their hearts. And just just tell the Lord again, God, right now, I'm choosing. I'm choosing to break down the walls. I'm choosing to take a step closer. Come on. Come on, if that's you, start saying stuff like this. God, I'm choosing right now to ignore what I see and what I hear and what I feel. And I'm choosing to draw close again. Come on. I'm choosing to draw close again. 
God, it's not that I've been rocked this week or blah, blah, blah. None of that. Maybe you have been. But God, I'm choosing to push my heart where it ought to be, to a position of honor. No matter what you do or what you don't do, Lord, I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to draw my heart near to you. Maybe you have a great need and it's weighing upon your heart. Don't hold on to that. Don't hold on to that. Don't let that be the thing that keeps you from coming to the Lord. She could have sat back in her home and said, there's a demon in my daughter. What can be done? What else can I do? I've asked the Lord. I've asked whoever and nobody can do anything about it. What else can be done? And instead, because her heart was toward the Lord, she got direction and the answer came. Let's lift our hands one more time. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, God, we draw our hearts near to you. God, we draw our hearts near to you. Father, we break down every wall, every barrier that people have put up. God, whether it's been us or others, we break down every wall that people have put up. God, we allow our heart to draw near to you alone. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. Lord, we ask you to take those unclean things and do something with them. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that our heart nor our adversary is any obstacle to you. That you are able to do these things. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You received that word this morning? Okay. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening today to the Living Godcast. We trust and pray that you are blessed by today's word. If you would like to contact us for prayer or for more information about Church of the Living God, please visit our Facebook page at WinCityCOLG or give us a call at 859-745-1865.